we can't just talk about the environmental ecology of the natural. We need to talk about the human ecology. We need to talk about the political ecology, the economic ecology, uh, you know, the, the cultural ecology. All of these ecologies have to come together, but we cannot view it in that integrated way if we view humans as the problem. Dr. Larry Chapp is a retired professor of theology and specialist in the theology of Hans Urs von Balthasar. He taught for 20 years at DeSales University in Pennsylvania, and he now owns and manages with his wife a Dorothy Day Catholic Worker Farm. In this episode, he sits down with Benedictine College theologian, Dr. Matthew Ramage. Listen in as they discuss the mission of the farm, the ecological vision of the church, and the mystery of suffering in the cosmos. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America, one conversation at a time. From our studios in Atchison, Kansas, these are the Benedictine Dialogues. Welcome to the Benedictine Dialogues, Larry. Great to have you. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. All right. So also for coming to our Faith and Reason conference and speaking to our students in our classes, we had a great pizza party there over lunch. <laughs> we did. I'm very impressed. First time here. Beautiful campus, lovely people, uh, great place. Yeah, well, we'll get down to this. You and Carmina run the Dorothy Day Catholic Worker Farm. Can you tell us about your work? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty simple. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory to anybody that knows who Dorothy Day and Peter Morin were in the Catholic Worker Movement. It's all about getting Catholics, especially lay people, to take seriously living out the evangelical counsels, poverty, chastity, and obedience, that these are not just meant for what Bishop Barron calls the spiritual athletes of the church. It's the universal call to holiness. This was their message. This is our message. And so it means living out the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. And in our case, it's, it's both. So on the farm, people think, oh, you must grow a lot of food and send it to the poor. Well, we do a little bit of that. Uh, but what we've kind of discovered in the past 10 years is that the f food pantry, soup kitchen sort of industry has become well-stocked, let's put mm -hmm. it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, they get tons and tons of donations from grocery stores and things like this. So we discovered rather quickly that growing a lot of food for these venues isn't really needed. So we, we do now, we, we shifted to doing more education type mm -hmm. things on the farm, both in terms of here's how you grow a tomato plant. Here's how you shear yeah. sheep. This is how you spin wool. This is how you raise chickens. This is how you milk a dairy goat. So we, what Peter Morin called the agronomic university. We teach people artisanal skills that had been lost. And that was a big part of what Dorothy and Peter wanted the farms to be. But then beyond that, we do hospitality. And, and with regard to our farm, uh, the hospitality mainly consists in bringing groups on. And then we, we do a little bit of farm work, but then we spend a lot of time in fellowship. We, we feed them, of course. Uh, and then we have these what Peter Morin called roundtable discussions, which is, mm -hmm. you know, it's like a study circle. It's, it's a felt, it, we discuss the big ideas. People discuss their lives. They really unburden themselves. And we, we engage in a sort of theological education. We're also Benedictine Oblates, fitting here for Benedictine College. Mm -hmm. And we do Liturgy of the Hours with groups that show up as well. So we're kind of like a mini farm, mini retreat center, all mixed into one. Well, that's great. And actually, I'm going to ask you a question I don't know the answer to, but I want to hear from you. And that is, how did you get from my job to that? In other words, <laughs> he taught theology for 20 plus years. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, 
you know, as is, is the case that I suppose that anybody's personal vocation story, the, the causes of any major shift like that are multifocal, right? It's, it's like the coming together finally of the perfect storm of various factors. But the long story short is, in a negative way, I had sort of grown kind of uh, tired of teaching is not the right word. I, be, I became sort of disenchanted with a lot of what passes for modern Catholic higher education. I felt like I was just banging my head against the wall with the administration at our, at our, at our university to try and get what I thought was a proper Catholic classical sort of education thing going and just wasn't going anywhere. That, that, that's the negative part of it. So I was already feeling like maybe God is telling me it's time to move on to something else. Well, I had been teaching all these courses in Dorothy Day and the Catholic mm -hmm. worker movement and my wife, uh, Carmina, Carrie, we call her, is also a theologian, and she has done work with Dorothy Day and Peter Morin and the Catholic Worker. And we just, we just started thinking together in prayer and conversation. It seems like the time is now right for us to, instead of just talking the talk, to walk the walk. And so we, I, I quit my job at DeSales University, and I, we, we bought this farm, and the rest is history. But it really was, there was just a kind of moment of provocation where all yeah. of it, it really was a kind of road to Damascus moment, a, a sort of aha moment, where she and I were just sitting down with uh, our friend, Father John Gribowicz, who was co-owner of the farm, and all three of us together just came up independently of each other with the same idea. It's time to start a farm. Now you tell me, if you don't see the hand of the Holy Spirit in three people independently, all coming together and saying, we need to start a Catholic worker farm. Yeah. You know, that was, that was pretty convincing to me. So, so we did it, we took the plunge. Yeah, I'm with you. Coincidences are really God incidences, it's providence. Yeah. God incidences, I like that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal that. Good, yeah, <laughs> you're permitted. So, <laughs> but no, so one of the themes that we talk a lot about around here, I'm guessing this is something that you do, is the sacramentality of creation, how each creature reflects God. And in fact, some viewers may not know that Larry, some years ago, uh, wrote a whole book, the, the God of Covenant and Creation, right? That's right. That's Which it. I read and loved, and I, I'm citing in something I'm writing. Uh, but you talk about this, how each creature manifests God in the world, and you could go to church fathers from Basil the Great, who looks at the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into the butterfly, or uh, from as simple as the biblical image of the eagle reflecting God, to, to you name it. Um, so I wanted to see, what do you think about that? How, do you, how does that play out on your farm or just in your spirituality of creatures manifesting the glory of God? I think it's, it's a huge part of our farm because we're not just uh, a back to the land movement. We're not just a bunch of homesteaders making YouTube videos about how to can tomatoes. Mm -hmm in order to get subscribers. Our main goal, as was really the goal of Dorothy and Peter, was to praise and worship God properly. Yeah. But in a Christian context, praising and worshiping God properly translates almost immediately into a changed way of living, a changed mm -hmm. way of acting. Now, praising God properly and changing the way you live and act requires a change of how you view the world. Mm -hmm. you, you begin to see things with new spiritual eyes. And what we try to get people to see when they come to the farm and what we inculcate in ourselves is the recognition that every single element of the natural world, the natural environment that surrounds us is iconic, is sacramental. That a blade of grass isn't just a blade of grass. Mm -hmm. 
a blade of grass is, is an earthly liturgy, mm-hmm. all right? It's an earthly praise of God in, in the perfection of its grassness yeah. or whatever. I, I'm reminded of a book by Alexander Schmemann for the life of the world, mm-hmm. a great Orthodox theologian, mm-hmm. who said in, in thinking about water and yeah. why God created water, he said, God didn't create water to give us life and then added onto that baptism. God created water with baptism in view. Mm-hmm with the sacramental use in view. And he did so precisely because he also intended for it to be life-giving to our biological lives. Now, I thought that was a very interesting inversion of how to view the significance of water from a Christian sacramental perspective. Now, I think, yeah, you use water in in the actual sacrament of baptism, but I think you can translate that across the board to every single thing that we see in the natural world to realize that in its essence, when it is at its best, it is most itself when it's actually, in a sense, in, in, when it's doing what is most itself, praising God. So the sheep on our farm are praising God when they're being very sheepy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so in our helping them to be sheepy, we yeah. are helping them praise God. Yeah. All right? we, we are the liturgical mouthpiece for them in some ways, but they're also their own liturgy. Yeah, in fact, I think you touch upon this in your book, but there's a theme in Genesis itself. It's in people like Pope Benedict. It's all over the tradition of man as priest of creation. That's right. So I don't know if you could care to speak upon that, but it, there's a, a role of as Adam, as man, we till and keep, which is priestly language from Leviticus. Yeah. Obviously, we're not sacramental priests. There's a difference in, in kind there. But do you see that as an element in what's going on? Oh. Absolutely. This is so important, I think, Matt. It's really important because I think one of the most neglected aspects in in the modern church of of, of the Christian vocation is is this notion that all the baptized are a priestly people. Now, once again, proper distinction, sacramental versus non-sacramental priesthood. But what is the essence of a priest? A priest isn't just a mediator between God and man. A priest is an intercessor Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, in, in bringing us to God, in a sense, the priest is that intercessor. Therefore, we all, the baptized, are to be intercessors on behalf of the created world. Now, that doesn't just involve prayer. Obviously, we pray for the created world. Our role, though, as, as capstone liturgical mouthpieces for all of creation is to be intercessors precisely by offering God proper worship in mind, soul, and spirit, and offering to the Father as, as the capstone of, of the created world, this liturgy of the whole for all living things. And then beyond that, it actually caring physically yeah. for the physical environment. We are, we are acting in a priestly way. Okay, so here's Kill. one my wife and I debate about. Okay. Okay, we're the priests, we must effect something, and yet you were saying something that's very Thomistic that the sheep praises God by its very essence, right? Right. So how do we actually change something in the creature? What's actually being effected? Uh, well, I think that it's it's being effected more in terms of our orientation in ourselves, in our souls. In other words, it, it, salvation is corporate and existence is far more corporate than we think that it is. Mm-hmm. We are implicated in one another. And therefore, in aiding, I'm going to be very Thomistic here as well, in aiding a sheep to, to be more sheepy, uh, I'm not only aiding that sheep to be what it is, 
but I'm also in some sense now participating in that. Yeah. And in participating in it, I am able to take it somehow into myself, into my soul, and offer it up to the Father. So in a sense, something is being effected in terms of the human disposition towards these things. Now, I, I think there could also then be a sense, an analogical sense, yeah. in which something is being effected in, in, in the creature itself. Um, but I think that's going to have to wait for the eschaton for mm -hmm. us to see, yeah. to see what it is that changed internally, say, in a sheep, because we were taking its sheepiness into ourselves, if you want to put it that way, yeah. and, and, and to offer it to God. Some, because of the sheep's connection to us spiritually, because we're all implicated in one another, something has to have changed within, within that animal as well. Yeah. And we will see we will see what that is in the eschaton, and we will see the connections. Uh, like, I, I like to joke with people, and uh, it's not so much a joke because I kind of believe it uh, strongly. I'm a big dog lover, and mm -hmm. I've had dogs my whole life, and I firmly believe that uh, my, I will see my dogs again yeah. someday. Uh, I don't know if a dog has an immortal soul and all that kind of stuff you know, that, that yeah. Thomas talks about, but because the dog is implicated in me, yeah. I'm implicated in the dog. Mm -hmm. And if I am going to go to heaven as me, that means that everything I've ever come into contact with in my life comes yeah. with me as well, transformed. Yeah. And that means the sheep too. And every blade of grass you've ever walked on with your bare feet, mm -hmm. every sunset you've ever watched, every raindrop that's ever hit you on the nose or in the eye is somehow going to be with you in the next life. Yeah, I think that's crucial. It's, it's not the most popular opinion when we think of only humans have immortal souls. However, all of creation from a biblical point of view, which is usually where I'm focusing, is implicated. That's right. Romans 8, the whole creation yeah. is groaning, right? And you see this in the church documents. Vatican II has lines about it. The last three popes have all talked about it. Ratzinger even talks about the transubstantiation, quote unquote, That's of right. creation, right? So that some change is effected in that creature that we, we will not know until we get to heaven. One thought Jen and I have though is, okay, there's currently at this very moment, a hog sitting on the smoker at my house for us to eat. <laughs> I've done that too. And I believe that we are transforming that pig in some way and elevating it. And so the difference between it getting eaten by a pack of wolves, which is also natural, yeah. and us doing it, it's not like the pig is thereby brought to heaven by that, but the roasting of coffee grounds, the pig being smoked, right? All these things. And that actually leads to the next question I wanted to yeah. ask you, which is all the, the, the evil or apparent evil, all the suffering in creation, mm -hmm. right? That indeed that bean has to be crushed. The grain of wheat Christ says in John 12, 14, I believe has to fall to the earth and die, right? Uh, some people, Balthazar, Benedict, they speak of the kind of Paschal or Trinitarian structure of creation. They do. Uh, and I want us to go into that a bit, just to, to riff on the idea of what's the deal with all of this suffering? How does this fit into God's plan? Well, you've asked two great questions, two separate questions, really. One's about the problem of evil, mm -hmm. uh, which is ultimately, in my view, an, an unanswerable question <laughs> completely and satisfactorily in this life. I will say, at least with regard to that question of suffering, um, that I, I think the main thing that the Christian needs to avoid is, is offering 
like Job's friends, overly facile mm -hmm. explanations. Well, uh, this bad thing happens because of X, Y, Z, or even the classic free will argument. Mm -hmm. is, is, it's, it, it works, you know, God is in his permissive will, allows mm -hmm. for a certain amount of suffering we inflict on each other uh, because you have to do that to allow for free will. Okay, fine, does that really, really ultimately satisfy everything? Mm -hmm. does, does that explain some of the most horrific evils that we've ever perpetrated upon each other? Uh, couldn't God have had Hitler die in a car wreck when he was five? I mean, it, it, these, these are things, you know, people die in car wrecks all the time. In the words of Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof, would it wreck some vast eternal plan, <laughs> all right, if, if God had slightly altered the course of history in order to mitigate some of the sufferings of, of the more horrific sort? So these are ultimately um, superficial answers in some ways that are trite, and I think it helps us to cope with the sufferings in some way. But I, I'm a big believer in the fact that we know actually very little about why it is that God permits suffering, other than the fact that we know that ultimately it's going to redound to our good. Now, that, that can sound kind of pietistical as well, but what's the other option? The other option is that God doesn't exist or that God is evil himself. And neither, for, for a lot of good reasons, we reject those two things. So we have to be, C.S. Lewis does really well with this. We have to be committed. God exists. God is infinitely good. There is evil. What we do with that third piece is, mm -hmm. is critical. Mm -hmm. And not to overanalyze it, but to simply say, we know one thing, that God has not exempted himself mm -hmm. from the implications of that evil. He has entered into that evil and descended into it and suffered through it. So ours is not an absentee landlord, God. Uh, the, the tenement in which we live might have rats and roaches, <laughs> but God is living there too. Yeah. Okay, so that, that's part of the answer. Now, but that does then segue a little bit into the other part of your question, which is death. There's, there is a paschal mystery at the heart of our corporeal, corporeality, our, our materiality, our living and embedded material world. Um, Balthazar says there's a kenotic element. Mm -hmm. Our mere finitude as material beings means that some kind of death is a natural part of everything that we go through. Because finitude combined with the passage of time it means that things are constantly going into mm -hmm. existence and, and dying and being replaced by something else. And that allowing yourself to die and to be replaced by something else is a form of kenosis. It's a form of divestment. And Balthazar says, you see this all the way down mm -hmm. the chain of a material existence. And he says, I don't think that he thinks it's simply because of evil. He thinks that this is a constitutive mm -hmm. part of, of being a material person in time, that there is going to be this kenosis. And that does mirror the kenosis, the kenosis of the Trinity. Um, I'm, I'm, I've re recently been reading a lot of this French phenomenologist, Emmanuel Falk. I don't know if you No, I've never read him. Yeah, um, he's dense. He's not an easy read. And oftentimes when you read European authors, you're trying to figure out who it is they're really talking to because <laughs> they're, they're reading other European authors of which you're not familiar. So you're going, okay, he's talking about somebody here. I don't know who it is. But his phenomenology says this, that our corporeality involves death. Death isn't just the result of sin. There is a dying element in just finitude and corporeality 
Remember, he's a phenomenologist, and our experience of our corporeality is, is, involves this kenosis, this death. Uh, and that, that is an important thing to remember as we appreciate our role as priestly intercessors and effectors in our relationship with the natural world. The natural world is not all butterflies and rainbow unicorns. Mm -hmm. okay? uh, the universe is also about rattlesnakes and Ebola. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and even the the butterfly essentially liquefied itself in order to become a butterfly. That's right. So. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. It involved the kenotic transformation of that caterpillar, mm -hmm. and, and and then what comes out later is is amazing. Yeah. No, you and I were were just mutually commiserating over our various physical ailments, and and yeah. no one wants to have any number of problems, right? But when you read things like John Paul II's document, Salvifici Dolores on Redemptive Suffering, and he talks about his God allowing these for our sanctification, right? And yeah. Benedict had some lines where he said, man without this would be a monster. And Oh, well, wow. I've never heard that. I'd like to know where that yeah, came from. I've got I got really a whole would. chapter. On, yeah, I can share these things. Man without some kind of suffering would be a monster. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, and, and so it's pretty speculative in the sense of when you start to figure out what originally did humans go through, it, people get very heated and very opinionated, but we really don't know. No, and, we don't. And, yeah. <laughs> and you get all these fine Thomistic, and I'm not against Thomism, uh, but you get these fine Thomistic distinctions and speculations about what was prelapsarian humanity mm -hmm. really like, and mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to what, what were the capacities of prelapsarian. I don't think we know. Yeah. I don't think we know. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, this is Emmanuel Falk's point in his phenomenology, where he says that he, he thinks that we've exaggerated to a certain extent the, that the nature of our sufferings is the result of sin. Mm -hmm. That even in the, our prelapsarian condition, our finitude and corporeality and time boundness probably did involve some element of suffering. Yeah. And our recent popes speak about that. C.S. Lewis has some great stuff on, I think it's the problem of pain. Yeah, the, the oh, yeah. first chapter he goes in and he, he gives this hint. It's always a hint from he's a, li a literary man, right? Yeah. It, sometimes it takes a non-theologian to say it. But Adam and Eve in paradise may have experienced some glimpse of this suffering in terms of a yearning and eros. Even then, it wasn't yeah. complete sitting around anesthetized. That's right. Right. He has two chapters in The Problem of Pain on the Fall. Mm -hmm. It's the only subject that he deals with in two chapters in The Problem of Pain. Oh, right. Yeah. The first chapter is on divine power, the next one's divine goodness, mm -hmm. and then a few other things. And then all of a sudden he's talking about and Obviously, so he considers it quite important. And you're absolutely right in his reflection on eros and desire and stuff. There's, there's an implication there of a, of a kind of suffering. And, and, I, and I think that that's very important for Lewis. Um, I, I was going to say something else, and it, it sort of left my brain just now about, about Lewis and, and the fall and the prelapsarian condition. But anyway, if, yeah. if I may jog your memory yeah. or just press it, some people make a distinction, and you can use different nomenclature, but between suffering and pain, right? I think of I used to be a runner before my body got destroyed by lupus. But there was always that runner's high and the point of no pain, no gain. Yeah. Or we had more vulgar ways of putting these sayings as guys. But the idea was you can go through physical pain as an Olympic athlete and more glory comes from it. St. Therese even speaks of this sort of thing. 
But however it got there, it's in the world and we've had 13.8 billion years of life's development, three and a half billion years of evolution with creatures dying and rising and, yeah. and all that. And you speak about that in your God of Covenant creation, right? That even evolution has a te teleology to it, right? Um, and one thing that surprises people when I talk to my students and especially adults who think they know stuff is they don't realize that even Aquinas, while not knowing the modern science side, he was a firm belief that all creatures, excepting man, his view, died. Yeah. So he, he respected the integrity of nature. So most people tend to assume, in my experience, sin caused everything to die. So where, where I think this is important for my spirituality is that whatever sufferings I have, I'm actually integrated into the world in God's plan through that suffering and then rising through offering that up. And then when I go and I kill that pig <laughs> or even the raccoon getting into my basement or whatever it might be, you do it in the most dignified, dignified way possible, yeah. right? But it's not as if we have to be vegetarians. Well, you do it in a way to mitigate suffering. I say it's people like my mother is always saying, oh, how can you butcher a lamb? Mm -hmm. How can you butcher a pig? And like, well, because animals have no self-awareness of their own mortality. They don't know what's coming, so they, they don't suffer any fear of death or anything like that. They're eventually going to die anyway. Mm -hmm. It's not as if this animal is immortal. And if it were in the wild, it would be subject to all kinds of predation. So as long as you dispatch the animal quickly mm -hmm. and as painlessly as possible, uh, I think it's perfectly allowable yeah. to, you know, yeah. to, to have a pig roast or to butcher a chicken yeah. and so on. Um, and I know what it's going to say about C.S. Lewis, too, in, in The Fall, which is this. There had to be, and, and Aquinas, Aquinas struggles with this mm -hmm. as well with regard to the angels. That's right. There had to be something in their experience of their freedom and their desires that wasn't completely locked into the good yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because if it were already the full beatific vision of the good and all that, then it wouldn't be possible for them to turn away from it. Yeah. Uh, and so, but they did turn away from it. They did. Hmm. Which, which means that there had to be some kind of opaqueness. Yeah. And that too is, is, it creates a certain ambiguity in our desires, which can be a kind of suffering. Aquinas, Aquinas struggles with this with regard to the angels. Hmm. Okay, how can... How could the angels fall if these are these pure intellects with this pure spiritual awareness who see the goodness of God? So he's kind of all, in many ways, he's kind of all over the map in answering that question. Mm -hmm. Because uh, he, he, he wants to avoid saying, well, the angels too had a kind of opaqueness and stuff. Um, but, but anyway, that's off, off topic. Oh, uh, no, that's good. Thank you for listening to the Benedictine Dialogues. We'll be right back to the show after this brief message. How do we navigate the seemingly competitive claims of faith and science? When it comes to creation, some people have this legitimate concern. If life evolved, does that mean God's not necessary? Dr. Ramage, if we no longer accept the ancient cosmology, how do we know anything's true anymore? Atheists and Christians alike tend to unite in seeing the Bible and science as mutually contradictory. But the Catholic Church actually thinks quite differently, that from the very beginning, God has been perceived in the things that were made. How do God and creatures work together? What is the relationship of creation, God, the history of life, 
And what does knowing the created world reveal about God? I'm Dr. Matthew Ramage, full professor of theology here at Benedictine College, and this is Faith in Science. To enjoy Dr. Ramage's free video series, Faith in Science Creation, be sure to visit media.benedictine.edu. And now, back to the show. So we could keep on these topics. I want to make sure we get in something that's seemingly totally different, but the nomenclature is similar. And that is, among your many good articles you've written, I believe it was the Christological and Cruciform Nature of Evangelization, part three, where you talk about, well, how you need to be joined to the cross and empty yourself to evangelize. But the particular part of that I thought was really moving for me personally was where how essentially a lot of times we think we're right. We have nothing to learn from anybody else and we've got it all figured out. And so you essentially said, if I got you right, that you have to learn to live from the abyss and understand people's problems, understand you don't have perfect servitude, understand you're not perfected. That's right. I'd like to switch this gear towards how do you communicate the faith when this is the scenario in which we find ourselves? It's difficult. Um, first off, I got that idea about modern life being characterized by an experience of floating above the abyss, a kind of meaninglessness, from Joseph Ratzinger's book, Introduction to Christianity, mm -hmm. where at the very beginning, he talks about St. Therese of Lisieux, and he points out that she, she grew up in a perfectly normal young, as a young woman in France, uh, and a perfectly Catholic upbringing with all the social accoutrement of being a French Catholic of that time. So in other words, there was no reason for her to have serious doubts towards atheism, and, mm -hmm. and yet what we find from her writings is she was seriously afflicted with yeah. temptations to atheism. And so Ratzinger writes, here we have this great saint, Therese of Lisieux, who was constantly tempted by atheism. And he, and he then brings it, this only goes to show that, that the quintessentially modern person is a person afflicted, afflicted with a fundamental orientation to the abyss below mm -hmm. instead of to the God above. Because modernity is characterized by a deep de facto atheism, mm -hmm. a deep de facto unbelief. That is the hallmark of our time. If that's true, and you see this not just in St. Therese, but amongst many modern saints, there is this experience. It is a kind of dark night of the soul, but it's the dark night of the soul on steroids. Mm -hmm. Because the dark night of the soul was simply a kind of removal of all consolations, a dryness, mm -hmm. super acedia, whatever you want to call it. But the modern experience of the abyss is more akin to a sharing in Christ's descent into hell. And I see that, once again, our role as intercessors, the, the vocation of the Christian is to suffer vicariously for the other as Christ did. Mm -hmm. And so what God is sending to us in the modern world is a form of sanctity, a form of saints that involves suffering through the unbelief of this world, descending into the hell of the abyss below. And God is giving to modern saints, whether they want it or not, this experience of the abyss mm -hmm. so that they can experience hell on behalf of all those in the modern world who are experiencing the hell of this deep, deep and profound cultural disbelief. 
and we have to we have to run with that. We have to we have to really enter into that as the dynamic of our time. And that is scary as heck. Yeah. That is scary as heck. I almost weep when I think about what it is that Christ experienced in his descent into hell and that we are actually being called to follow him there. Mm -hmm. There's a line from a philosopher I used in a book a while back that I found pretty profound. He says, in the modern era, we don't believe despite doubting, we believe while doubting, we're all Thomas now. And there's some truth to that. And it also, yes. for evangelization, matters. Uh, Ratzinger Benedict said one time on a catechesis as Pope, it's actually okay to have doubts. It's, Thomas's doubts actually ended up being providential. We got one of the greatest affirmations of Christ's divinity out of it. That's right, actually, my right? Lord and my God. Yeah, so all that's important. Yeah. And I think it ties in to the topic of ecology and creation really well. So the, the thing, we've even talked about this, but you have basically two divided camps over here and there's an abyss somewhere in the middle you've got to live in um, where you have an ideological side that let's just say thinks the environment everything's okay keep living as we're living and over here you have as as I like to say you know the last tornado was caused <laughs> by by humans yeah. right somewhere there is a Catholic view that is not as simplistic as often painted yeah. And I wonder if you could help viewers who may not be as familiar with this to understand when they hear about environmental issues, creation, how do they overcome this divide and actually take an authentically Catholic approach to the matter? The first thing I would say is this, is that we have to stop thinking of people as pollution. And there is this uh, curious uh, phenomenon in the modern world and in the environmentalist movement that we as Catholics have to be completely opposed to is the idea that the environment is destroyed because of human occupation. And therefore we need to get rid of humans essentially mm -hmm. to greatly diminish the number of humans on this planet because we are the problem. And yet, um, you know what? If you look in the history of this planet, there have been far bigger problems that have afflicted this planet, environmentally speaking, than merely human beings. I mean, the, the, the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs, that there was a period in which the entire Earth, the entire Earth was covered with ice. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, the ice Earth age of three billion years ago, whatever it was. We've been through worse, all right? Mm -hmm. And yet we're being led to believe that because of human beings, we need to depopulate. And, and, and so this is a whole mentality of, of human beings are the problem here. When in reality, the problem isn't human beings. The, the, the problem with our, our disaffection or alienation from the natural world and therefore our polluting of it is, is more the product of a certain technological paradigm mm -hmm. that has crept into our way of thinking. Uh, there was nothing inevitable about our civilization going down the technological path. That mm -hmm. This is a series of choices that we made. Mm -hmm. And therefore there are a series of choices that we can unmake. And this is the spiritual dimension of all of this that the Catholic has to pay attention to. There's no inevitability to any of this, whether it's terms of the technological imperative or there's no inevitability to the necessity of depopulating the planet. It involves a series of real choices that we have to make spiritually. And this is where the church has something to say. Uh, Pope Francis in Laudato Si talks in, about integral ecology. Mm -hmm. And what he means by that is we, we can't just talk about the environmental ecology of the natural. We need to talk about the human ecology of, of the moral dimension. We need to talk about the political ecology, the economic ecology, 
you know, the, the cultural ecology, mm-hmm. all of these ecologies have to come together. But we cannot view it in that integrated way if we view humans as the problem. Mm. If the only ecology you're concerned about is the natural world, then yes, all of those other ecologies just have to go. Mm. All right, so that the polar bears can go do their polar bear thing and penguins can do their penguin thing and grizzlies do their grizzly thing. We need to just get the whole other ecologies out of the way and leave this one. But that's silly because the natural ecology produced human beings. There's a certain Cartesianism, right, that still runs through the modern environmentalist movement if it thinks that in some ways human beings are, are, are not really a part of the natural. We're this sort of weird incrustation and infestation. You see this on both sides, too. On the one hand, you have you can change your gender because you aren't really your body. And then on the Catholic side, sometimes you see this, right, that we kind of drop down, we're not truly integrated in nature's rhythms. That's right. And spirituality can be a flight from the world rather than a mystical descent, if you will, into the realities of the here and now. In other words, as Dostoevsky's character put it, which I'll botch, the the person says, the more I love humanity, the more I hate individual people, sort of thing. You know the line better than I probably, but the, the idea there is, yeah, you can go love Africa or love the poor people in some place, but the Catholic doctrine of subsidiarity would say, yes, that matters, but how about you get to know your neighbor, clean yeah. up your neighborhood, right? These sorts of things also, and first even. Yeah, I don't know if it was Lewis or Chesterton that said that there's the kind of per- modern person that loves humanity in general, but not anybody in particular. And that might be the one, <laughs> Yeah, you it's, know, it's wise. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there's permutations and variations as people re- re- quote it from memory and maybe botch it a bit, mm-hmm. but it's the same idea right, that uh, we're dealing in abstractions more than in concrete reality. And, and, and what the church has to offer us is the concrete singularity of Christ in his incarnation, which in this singular event, God just didn't take on a human nature. He took all of creation up into himself, mm-hmm. into the divine life, because everything is implicated, everything is connected. And, and in so doing, he, he made it very, very clear that there is this corporate element to our to our salvation but also that we belong here we're not interlopers mm-hmm. so like you said you see this from you you see christian versions of this and secular versions of this mm-hmm. human beings as dangerous interlopers or as strangers i know there's a there's a definite true way of interpreting this language but i've always been a little bit uncomfortable in the christian spiritual tradition with talking about this is our exile. Mm-hmm. I, I don't feel exiled here. Yeah. Quite the opposite, I feel quite at home here. And the reason why people fear death, even Christians, is because it is the only hope, it's the only home we do know. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I might believe that there is a greater home somewhere yeah. else, yeah. Uh, but I have never seen that greater home. This is the home I've seen. So yeah. I don't actually feel like I'm in exile. I don't feel like I'm an interloper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I think the sooner we integrate that into our spirituality, that we're not, we're not in exile, we're not aliens, we belong here. You wouldn't have started this farm without it. As the biblical scholar N.T. Wright says, this is a great image, I think, you don't uh, paint the car or change the oil if it's going to go off a cliff. <laughs> in, in other words, yeah. if the world yeah. is going to hell in a handbasket yeah. immediately and yeah. the world is not destined to be transfigured at the end of time, there's no reason in caring for it. And 
So it turns out that Catholicism yeah. actually offers this great incentive that the secular environmentalism doesn't even have to care for it. The eschatological horizon exactly gives us the greater, uh, the, the, the belief that this world is ultimately going to be not annihilated. We're not gonna fly off like Tinkerbell, like a ball of light into some purely immaterial celestial thing. thing. By immaterial, I mean having no bearing on our, on our material past. Yeah, this is silliness. It gives us every reason yeah. to invest in this world because guess what? We do take it with us. Yeah. We take it all with us. And so we better, you know, and of course God, it's not our, I don't want to be a Pelagian here. It's all by God's grace, God's transformation. But every single thing we experience in this life is not going to be annihilated. It's going to be transformed and lifted up higher. Whereas a non-believer, a secular person, what would, you know, what would stop a, a whole generation of modern human beings from saying, to heck with the future. Let's just rape the planet. Mm -hmm. Let's, because eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we're all dead. Mm -hmm. Then we're annihilated. I don't care who comes after me. Yeah. I'm not going to be around to experience it. And if I pump 10 trillion tons of CO2 into the environment for a future generation to worry about, so be it. Mm -hmm. So be it. Party on, Garth. Yeah, you know? yeah Wayne. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, if the, if the world is destined to be transfigured and there's a new heavens and new earth that builds upon and not is irrelevant to the present, then that matters. So, yeah. Larry, I think we end with the end. That's where we conclude. And so, Larry, where can people find more information about your farm and work? No, it's the Internet age, so go online. Uh, the, the farm has a web page. It's uh, DD, that stands for Dorothy Day, Farm. Dot org, uh, or you can go to my blog, gaudiumatspez22.com. Terrific. Thanks. Thank you. We could keep going, but we thanks talk for hours. joining us. This was hey, wonderful. Th thank you. I had All a great right. time. Appreciate it. God bless. Thanks for putting up with my bloviating. All right. No problem, Wayne. <laughs>